You're the love of my life. There's no one else above you. No one compares. You're the love of my life. Who died and rose again for me? Who always cares? You're the one who's come and captured my heart. Drove away the fears in my life. Sitting at your feet is my place. Hearing your words, you're the love of my life. You showed me what true love is through sacrifice. You're the love of my life, the one I always turn to to get advice. You're the one who turned my whole world around. Giving me the strength to go on. To know you is to love only you and give up one's life. Oh, you're the one I've always wanted to be like. Oh, help me, Lord, to be all you want me to be. Hold my hand, lead me on. Oh, lead me on. You're the love of my life, the one who knows me better than I know myself. You're the love of my life. Who drew this helpless sinner to himself? You're the one who gave me a purpose in life and taught me how to love and to give. To love you is to know only you and take up one's cross. Wanted to be like. Oh, help me, Lord, to be all you want me to be, and hold my hand and lead me on. Oh, lead me on. You're the Good evening. Could you turn your Bibles to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 15, verse 30, please. Romans chapter 15, verse 30. All right, this evening we're going to study Romans 15, 32. And we're going to study this evening in this verse that the ultimate purpose of 
the Apostle Paul's true request in Romans 15, 31, is that he would find rest in the company of the Roman believers. After he delivered the gift to the poor Jewish saints in Jerusalem, then he would, uh, after that, he would head to Rome, and his ultimate destination would be uh, Spain, of course, the westernmost part of the Roman Empire in the first century. And we see that, of course, Paul did get to Rome, but he, he went there through undeserved suffering. He had to go, he was arrested, and he was unjustly uh, arrested and incarcerated. They accused him of um, bringing a, a Gentile into the Jewish section of the temple, which was a lie. And so they incarcerated him unjustly. In fact, Agrippa and uh, Felix, they basically held him under house arrest without really any um, evidence against him. So he basically stayed in prison for three, uh, in Caesarea Judea for about three years. And then he, made, he had made an appeal to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen. And he, then he, he, he went his way. They took a voyage and he went to a shipwreck there on the island of Malta. He did end up in the city of Rome, but as, of course, a prisoner of the Roman state. And uh, so Paul, uh, he's, when he was in Rome, he was there from 60, 61 and 62 A.D. He was released, church history tells us, in 62 A.D. That was his first Roman imprisonment. And so he was released there. So he, he probably spent five, six years in prison, un- undeservedly suffering, which is, uh, and of course, the Apostle Paul, he never became bitter, of course. He never became uh, involved in, uh, in uh, vindictiveness. And uh, what he did was he used that situation, that un- uh, difficult situation, to bring glory to God. Because if he, what he did, we see, is that we have the Roman epistles, where they call them, the prison, and pris- prison epistles. We have Philemon, Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians. All were written while Paul was waiting for his appeal trial before Caesar. So uh, we have these great letters in our possession because he was imprisoned. And we have a lot of things that we learn in those epistles from the Apostle Paul. We studied Philippians. We studied the book of Ephesians as well. Uh, also, uh, well, that's what, this is what we're going to be studying here this evening. What we're going to also see this evening, we're going to talk a lot about <clears throat> the will of God the, and the different aspects of the will of God the geographical, operational, viewpoint will of God, also the directive, permissive, and overruling will of God. See, the will of God can be looked at from different perspectives, and we're going to talk about that in relation to the life of the Apostle Paul. So as we're going to see this evening in verse 32, we're going to see the ultimate purpose of Paul's two requests in Romans 15, 31, is that he would find rest in the company of the Roman believers. So he, it wouldn't be until he got to Rome that he would find rest refreshing rest in the company of the Roman believers. So you should be at Romans 15, verse 30. Let's take a moment of silent prayer, as we normally do, to name and sight, confess any known sin to the Father. Do what 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to the Father, <clears throat> he, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, with the result that he purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. And uh, once we do that, we're restored to fellowship, but we have to maintain our fellowship with God by bringing our thoughts into obedience to the Spirit who speaks to us through the teaching of the Word of God. This is what we studied in Romans chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. That constitutes obeying the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit, commanded of us in Ephesians 5.18. If there's anything that's disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So in the privacy of our very own royal priesthood, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you so so much, Father, for gracing us out and placing us in union with your Son, Jesus Christ. And we know that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of our union and identification with your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the victory that we have through your Son over sin, Satan, and his cosmic system through the death and resurrection of your Son. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who's appropriated what your Son did for us the moment we trusted in your Son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. We know that now we have all the capacity we need, the indwelling of you, Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and our position in Christ, so that we can bring glory to you. And we just thank you, Father, for giving us joy, the joy of our salvation, and also the joy of knowing that even if we might go through undeserved suffering, we know that there are rewards waiting for us, and that we can have joy in facing undeserved suffering, just like your servant Paul has demonstrated in his life and in the epistles where he's related these things to us. And we just thank you for this study of the book of Romans, and we pray that you would help us uh, all in the audience here this evening to concentrate. We pray, Father, that they would, the Holy Spirit would help each one of us to concentrate and to pay, pay strict attention to what the Spirit will be saying through the teaching of the Word of God. So we pray that we could be objective and carefully consider the things that we'll be noting here this evening. And we also pray, Father, that you would give grace to the communicator impart to him the grace he needs so that he could make this happen, so that he could deliver your full counsel to your peace, people in a fashion that would bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, and minister to your people. So, Father, we pray for these things in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in Romans fifteen we're going to see that Paul expresses the ultimate goal of his two requests in Romans fifteen thirty one, Namely, that when he enters into the company of the Roman believers he will find rest for himself. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 30, please. We'll pick it up there in context. And that begins the final paragraph of chapter 15. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, on the basis of our common relationship with him, and on the basis of the divine love produced by the Spirit, to strive together, that means fight together with, me in your prayers to God for me, that I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. And then he says in verse 32, our passage for this evening, so that I might come to you in joy, or with joy as we'll see, by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So that verse, verse 32, is a purpose clause that does not present two more requests that parallel the two that were in verse 31, but rather verse 32 has a purpose clause that expresses the ultimate goal of the two requests in verse 31. So when he says in verse 31, that I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be proved acceptable to the saints, the next thing he says in verse 32 is basically a progression. He's, he's building up, he's building up. Verse 32 gives us the ultimate goal of those two requests in verse 31. What's that? That I might come to you enjoyed by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So what verse 32 is doing, when I say it's the ultimate, that's presenting to us the ultimate request, the ultimate goal, is that Paul has to do first things first. He has to finish the job that God had given to him. And then he would move on. For instance, he says that I might first request, that I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. 
That has to take place. That's in verse 31 that we see. That did take place. We saw that in the book of Acts. And then he says the second request, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints in the city of Jerusalem. And that was also accepted as we saw in the book of Acts the last two evenings. Now that's out of the way. Now, he's saying, then I will find rest. Then I will come to you. But I have to do this work first before I can find rest. So this interpretation is indicated by Paul's statements in verses 24 through 28 of this chapter. And those verses reveal that Paul would not go to Rome until he delivered the offering from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So what he's saying to us is that going to Rome and hanging out with them, fellowshipping with them, is going to be relaxing for him. Of course, he gets there when he, he gets there as a prisoner of the Roman state, which is kind of funny. But he said, being in your presence is going to be relaxing. But I have to do this work that has a priority. I have to deliver this gift from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the poor Jewish saints in Jerusalem because this would be a token of the Gentile believers' love for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And it would serve to promote unity. And love is the perfect bond of unity. God's love, not human love. God's love, so you know that you're operating in the, God, in the love of God. This is the distinction between God's love and human love. God doesn't need an attractive object to love. For instance, God say, God, it says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his uniquely born son that whoever, whoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. So God loved the world of sinners. How? Because his character and nature, he is love. That's his character and nature. That's one of his attributes. So God loved us even though we weren't attractive to him. So a believer, when we get the spirit, when we believe in Christ, and we take in the word of God, and we see how God's treated us as it's related in the scriptures, when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, God raised us up and seated us with his son, Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2. While we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us as a substitute. He, we see when we take that on faith, how God treated us, that gives us the capacity, the power to live in that love. So therefore, we can face people who have wounded us. We can face people who are, are hurting us. And we have faced people who might be persecuting us. And we can, we can face the people in our marriages, our marriage partner or somebody in our family that has hurt or wounded us we know that we can still pray for them. We can still give them forgiveness. We can still be patient and tolerant with them. Why? Because that's how God has treated us. That's how you know you're in fellowship with God and living in the love of God when you can love the unlovely and you do it because God has treated you that way. For instance, if you went up to the Apostle Paul and you said, Paul, uh, they're persecuting, like we just saw in Acts chapter 22, they sought to kill him, the Jewish unbelievers. Now, those are his Jewish countrymen. He would tell you, I love them, and I, 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 I pray for them. I love them even though they're seeking to hurt me. Why? Because Paul knew that he'd been forgiven much by Jesus Christ. Paul persecuted the church people. Jesus said to a woman who was a prostitute, Luke 7, she believed in him, and she was crying all over his feet. And, G and the Pharisee who was there, who invited Jesus to his home, he didn't like Jesus. 
And he didn't like this woman. And we see that Jesus said, you know, this woman, those who, he said, she's, her sins have been forgiven and she's shown appreciation by weeping these tears and she was wiping his feet with, his, with her tears. The Simon, the Pharisee, never gave him water, which you're supposed to do when you entered somebody in the ancient world, their home, give him water to wash off his feet or slaves should have done that. Simon, the Pharisee, never did that for Jesus. But the woman was doing it with her tears. And Jesus said, those who love much have been forgiven much. Now, haven't we all been forgiven much? Oh, yeah. Everyone. Then why did Paul, Jesus say that? What he meant was, the people who are operating in, his, in the love of God, like Paul did, and loving those Jewish unbelievers with these seeking to kill him, he loved them, and he loved them because he knew that he'd been forgiven much. Paul loved much because he knew and believed it was in his heart God had forgiven him much. And he was obligated to forgive these Jewish unbelievers who were seeking to kill him. So self-righteousness says, I'm not going to forgive. And self-righteousness says, I'm not going to forgive. And they forget that they've been forgiven much by God. So a self-righteous person like Simon the Pharisee, he didn't love. He didn't love at all because he was right in his own eyes. That's what self-righteousness is. So we see that Paul, in, in, in Romans, uh, in verse 32, Paul gives us a purpose clause that doesn't present two more requests that parallel the two in Romans fifteen thirty-one, but rather they express the ultimate goal of the two requests in Romans fifteen thirty-one. This, that's in, this is indicated, because I'm not talking out of the top of my hat. I give you, I, I, uh, I like to give my audience, give my audience a bit of credit. I explain to you why I have this interpretation. Because you're held accountable and I am held accountable as to what we believe in. So that's why I give you my, my explanation why I believe what I believe. So this interpretation, again, is indicated by Paul's statements in verses 24 through 28, which reveal that Paul would not go to Rome until he delivered the offering from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, when he says, I may come, if you look at verse 32, please, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, the phrase, I may come, is one word in the Greek. It's the word, it's the participle form of the verb, erkama. And that's the language, the Greek language in the New Testament, that God the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write in. That's why I go back to the original languages. He didn't write in King James. He didn't write in the New American Standard or any English translation. And that's why a pastor who is doing his job will go back to the original language. So this word erkama is capable of a wide variety of meanings through the addition of very various prefixes. And it's a general word, people, for expressing motion towards something. Now, as was the case in verse 22 of this chapter, the verb erkama in chapter 15, verse 32, our passage, means to enter, since it's used with the prepositional phrase pros humas, which speaks of Paul being in the company of the Roman believers. When he says to you, that, that, that when he says there in the verse in Romans 15, 32, so that I might come to you, to you is referring to the Roman believers. So this verb, erkama, this verse speaks of Paul entering into the company of the Roman believers after delivering the contribution 
from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The word functions as a temporal participle. What does that mean? It answers the question, people, as to when Paul will find refreshment. Namely, when he's in the company of the Roman believers. After he's done what he's supposed to do, the work he's supposed to do, after he's completed that phase of his ministry, then he will move on to Rome. So to you speaks of a personal, intimate fellowship between Paul and the Roman believers, and it denotes his coming into the company of, or into the presence of the Roman believers. Now, you couldn't figure that out looking at your English translations. That's what it means. It talks about intimacy between the two. Because the prepositional phrase that's translated to you in your Bibles talks about like me and you being face-to-face like we are now. Remember I say, when you die, how many funerals I did here? Absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. And what is the phrase in the Greek? Pros, which is, means face-to-face, and kurios, Lord. So when we die as a Christian, we're in his presence. That's what this, when it says to you, Paul's saying, I'm going to be in your presence. He's saying, I'm going to have fellowship with you. That's what Paul, you know, one of the great things that, you know, a lot of Christians think they're having Christian fellowship when really, you know, talking about baseball scores is not really Christian fellowship. It's sharing the things of Jesus Christ. The best things in life are when I, the most exciting conversations with me. That's one of the reasons why, well, we won't go there, but we might as well say it anyways, why not? What, you know, people talk about marrying somebody. Well, you know, until I find a woman who, who, is, uh, who I can talk to about the things of God, I mean, there's no sense in getting married to somebody. That, 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 that's, I'm talking about a single woman. There are many married women who, can, who know the things of Christ. But as far as I'm concerned, and I say that because I, if I want a stimulating conversation, I don't want to talk to Susie Q at the bar as she's slamming down, you know, margaritas and talking about worldly things. The most exciting things for me as a pastor are sharing the things of Christ, talking about the Bible. And that's what Paul loved. He knew these Roman believers were positive to the word of God. They wanted to hear the word of God. And he wanted to be in a place where they wanted to hear him teaching. And that's where he found refreshing rest. Being in their presence, knowing that they were responding to him, and he was responding back as we saw in chapter 1. Now, the key phrase of the passage, if you look at verse 32, he says, So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. Great phrase. It's a prepositional phrase in the Greek. We have the preposition thea, which is translated by, and then we have the genitive form of the noun thalima. And this word is followed by the, the genitive form of the noun theos, which means God. Now, the word thalima refers to the geographical will for the Apostle Paul. See, there's di- I told you we're going to talk a little about the, about the will of God. The will of God, I've done a lot of work on it, and there's a lot of articles on the website that you can check out. But there's different ways to looking at the will of God. There's, in our case, there's the geographical will of God, there's the operational will of God, and there's the viewpoint will of God. The viewpoint will of God, we star in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2. What does God want me to think? How do you, when you are in a situation and circumstance, you've got to say, what does the Bible say about how I should conduct myself in a certain situation? That's the viewpoint will of God. Then we have the operational will of God, 
which is actually tied to the viewpoint will of God. Operational means, what does God want me to do? Now, if you don't know his viewpoint will, what he wants you to think, you're certainly not going to do his operational will. Now, there's a place that God wants us to be, and that's the geographical will of God. Paul knew that he can't go to Rome and then to Spain because God's geographical will for him was to first go to Jerusalem and to deliver that gift, even though he knew that it was going to be great suffering for him. But he knew that God was going to be glorified in that suffering when he went to Jerusalem. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, as we've noted, brings us into situations that are going to be so difficult. There was somebody said to me this before class, what does tribulation mean? Was that Jody? Tribulation. We studied in Romans. The word, the Greek word talks about putting pressure on us. Sometimes God allows us to go through adversity because he's trying to draw us closer to him and to depend upon him more. So the more pressure he allows in our life, and we're squeezed into a situation like, what do I do? Have you ever been in that situation? What do I do? What does God want me to do? And you pray on it, you find out what your Bible says, and then you do what God tells you to do after you prayed on it. And you know what he wants you to do because you know your Bible. So it's not impossible to do the right thing if you don't know your Bible. So we see that Paul, when we see it by the will of God, he says, so that I might come to you, where? To Rome, with joy by the will of God. When he says the will of God, the word will there talks about the geographical will of God. Where does God want me to be? <clears throat> it's like the book of Jonah. The book I'm going to do after Romans is the book of Jonah. And Jonah learned about the... He was deciding for himself that he wasn't going to go to the geographical will of God. God said to him, I want you to go to the Assyrians and tell and give them the gospel. Tell them I'm going to judge Nineveh and Jonah wouldn't go because of a couple things. One, the Assyrians were butchers. The Jews didn't like the Assyrians because the Assyrians were very bad to the Jews. They, it would be kind of like asking a Jew today to go to Hitler's Nazi Germany and give him the gospel. But that's what God wants Jonah to do. God was teaching Jonah about that he loves all men, even the wicked Assyrians. Who, make, who are basically, I think, in a lot of ways, on a par with the Nazis. But the Assyrians, he had him go there. And he said, no, I'm not going. I'm going the other way. He got on a ship for Spain, which Paul was going to go. going to go on a ship for Spain, and he was going to go out there. But God said, made it really rough on him so that he had to turn around. So basically the ship got all messed up with a storm, and the soldiers said, why are you sleeping? <laughs> and so... And they made him, they finally get out of him that the ship was in turmoil, ready to go down because Jonah was on it. So Jonah said, throw me overboard and it'll be done with. And they did, and the sea was calm, and these guys get saved, and Jonah was in the belly of a whale. And Jonah there got spit up on the beach. And you know what's interesting? The Assyrians worshipped the fish god called Dagon. The fish god. And here's Jonah. Coming up on the beach, and a whale spits him out on the beach. What do you think the Assyrians were thinking? They were spooked out. No wonder they listened to this guy. He walks out, and he went through this Nineveh, three days' journey, saying Nineveh is going to fall. And 40 days, it's going to fall. And Jonah was mad because he knew God was going to save them. He knew that if they repented, God would save them. He was mad about that. Jonah didn't want to be in the geographical will of God. I'm going to Spain. 
but God overruled. And this is why it's very important that we're in the place that God wants us to be. If God wants, and this is something, it's between you and God and nobody else. It's between you and God because only you and God know where you, God wants you to be. And maybe some people help you out along the way. They have godly advice. But in the end, you've got to determine that. And that's clear. God will make it clear to you where he wants you to be. He'll open, he'll, remember, how do you know that? Word of God will talk to you. The Spirit will, will talk to you through the Word of God. And the Word of God, uh, also godly people will talk to you, give you godly advice. They know their Bible. Or three, God speaks to us through circumstances. So the circumstances work out where you go to a different place. And we see that Paul, he had to be in a certain, certain place. The geographical will for him was, first of all, Jerusalem, and then I'm going to Rome. So when he says, so that I might find refreshing, uh, might come to you, enjoy by the will of God, he says, what I mean by the will of God, it's where God wants me to be. So learn a lesson from Jonah that if you're not in the place that God wants you to be, he will make sure that you go to the place he wants you to be. And he will work it out the circumstances. If he needs to get a fish to get you, a whale to get you in the right direction, he will, which is kind of really relaxing to know and understand that God will do that for you. Now, this word will, the will of God, it refers to the will of Father, will of the Father from the perspective of what geographical location that the Father wants Paul to be in. The, the word theos, God, refers to the Father because Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 teaches that the Father is the author of the plan of salvation for the believer's life. And in addition, he's the author of the divine decree and he's the author of the will of God for your life and mine. Do you know that God has a plan for you from eternity past before anything was ever created? He had you specifically in mind. You're not just Paul and the super-duper saints. No. Every single one. You're special to God. As a believer, he has a certain place, certain will for you, for your life, and he wants you to do that will, and you learn it, and then you go out and do it. You learn the Bible, and he'll teach, the Spirit will teach you what that will is. So when he says, by the will of God here in Romans 15.32, he's talking about God the Father. Why? Because Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 teaches us that the Father is the author of the plan of salvation for the believer's life and the author of the geographical will of God, uh, will of uh, God for the believer's life. Now, when he says in uh, this word, thelema, uh, the will of God, the word will there, thelema, is the object of the preposition thea, translated by. And together, these two words express intermediate agency. And what does that mean? It indicates that the Father's sovereign will is the intermediate agency that the Father's going to employ to, de to determine when Paul arrives in Rome. Do you realize that way back before you and I were ever created, when there was just the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and no creation, you were in his mind, and I was. Every detail, think of your life as like a DVD almost. Every detail of your life and how it's going to begin and end and how it's going to go on into eternity is all in God's mind. He knows every single minute detail. He knows all the atoms that make up your physical body. He knows exactly everything about you inside out. As I said in the song earlier, he knows me better than myself. 
And that's comforting to know that God knows that much about us. It means that we can relax and we know that Paul, let's take Paul. Paul was supposed to be, he's going to go to Rome. We see after he goes to Jerusalem, delivers the gift. They accept the gift. Then I go to Rome. Then I go to Spain. God had that all mapped out for Paul. And when we hear about the providence of God, which we learned a lot about in Genesis, the providence of God tells us it's the outworking of the divine decree. What's the divine decree? It's God's plan before anything was ever created. And it was just him, the Father, and, the, and the, just the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and no creation, no angels, nothing. It was just them. And in their councils, they saw everything about us, every decision we would make, every negative decision and positive decision, and all the decisions that God would make. The angels' decisions, the bad ones by Satan, the good ones. The bad ones that we make, the good ones. All of them. Think of billions and trillions and myriads and innumerable number of people and angels. We don't even know how many angels there are. How many innumerable people that have come down the pike and are going to come down the pike in the future. God knows every single decision there. He knows exactly what they are. And he figured them into his plan, much like a computer. And read, right now, the, when I'm saying, my voice says it's, my mouth says it's speaking these words. We're known by God in eternity past. He knew all about that you'd be sitting here and listening or snoozing. I don't know what's going on. But that he know he knew all about. I know you're not you're not snoozing over there. But see, this is what when he says by the will of God, this will goes back to before anything was ever created. See, that gave Paul confidence in life. He knew that God was for him and not against him. He knew God was all for him and not against him. And he would get there. And even as we saw in Acts last evening, even if he was to die, he can't lose. No believer can lose when he dies. He goes into the presence of Christ. And that's why when somebody threatens your life, go ahead. You can say what Clint said. Make my day. Do me a favor. Take me out right now. I can go to be with the Lord and I'm all done with all this garbage, right? Well, enjoy. I love this phrase. It says, and verse 32, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. In joy is a prepositional phrase again. The Greeks did that. They piled on prepositional phrases. We have the preposition en, and then with it we have the word ara, which is translated joy. Now, the word ara means joy, and it refers to the Apostle Paul experiencing the joy of the Lord by means of fellowship with the Holy Spirit when he enters into the company of the Roman believers. You cannot have this joy, the joy of the Lord, the joy that Jesus Christ has, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You can't have this joy without the Holy Spirit producing in you. How does he do that? He speaks to us through the Word of God, and when we take it on faith, he produces this joy in our lives. Even a joy that we can have when things are falling apart. When you're going under tremendous trials and tribulations, you can have this joy. When you saw Paul, as he was chained to a Roman soldier, don't think that Paul was poor, poor Roman soldier. He was going to evangelize him. He was, he was a captive, not Paul. The Roman soldier was. I'm sure, and he evangelized the entire Praetorian Guard. So this word joy talks about something that the Spirit produces in us. And do you know that this, the joy of the Lord rejoicing is commanded of us? Hold your place. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. 
Look at it. Look at it. Says in First Thessalonians, chapter five. Look at uh, verse twelve. First Thessalonians five twelve. We'll pick it up in context. First Thessalonians five twelve. Paul's talking to the Thessalonian believers. He says, "But we request you of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction." Uh, appreciate those who teach you the word of God. And that you esteem them, he says, very highly in love. Why? Because of their work. Because they're doing the work of the Lord. So to, t- to not esteem them highly is not to esteem the Lord. Look at it, says in ver- he follows it. Live in peace with one another. We are, and remember, Paul said that in Romans, sometimes people don't want to be at peace with, with one another. You, he says, be at peace with one another as much as it, it depends upon you. Remember we studied that in Romans? Sometimes people don't want to be at peace with you. They want war. So as much as it can count on you, you be at peace. You don't be, you don't be the cause of, of a war, is what he's saying. Verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Then look what he says. Rejoice always. Now think about how many times we have to confess that sin. When was the last time we confessed the sin of not rejoicing always? But Pastor Bill, you don't know what the suffering I'm going through. My, my, my dog. Just peed all over my newspaper, you know. I mean, come on. It's like, give me a break. Some people are things they complain about. Look at James. You're going through something? You're supposed to have joy in it. You're to rejoice in your suffering. Look at James. It's after Hebrews. Keep going toward the end of the Bible. Look at James chapter 1, verse 1. You know, I say that about the dog peeing on the newspaper because I, I had it years ago in my family. It popped in my head. It's kind of funny. My parents had this dog, Kimba. It was Pot Samoyan Husky Pot Shepherd. Greatest dog in the world. When, when that dog died, we were all crying. Back then, I was young, I'm younger, and I was, you know, didn't want to act like it bothered me. But it bugged me when that dog died. I loved that dog. The cat, I couldn't stand. Prance. All white cat. I'm sorry, I don't like cats. And that cat, I could, when that cat died, I said to my mother, we could put, my mother cried for the cat. She had to execute it. She had to take it to the, the what do you call it? And that cat, what happened was, I said, when that cat dies, we could put stuff him, you know, and we can put him as a doorstop. You know, oh, she went through, she said, you're mean. And like, I'm just kidding. But the dog, oh, the dog, when the dog was a puppy, Kimba, I was reading the newspaper on the floor, and that dog ran over and peed on my newspaper. I was reading the sports page. I was a kid. It's like, how the heck can you do I'm having a bad day. The dog peed all over my newspaper. But that's what happened. Look at, look at James chapter 1, verse 1. That's why it popped into my head. I was... God had that funny thing, things that God puts in your head. Look at James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad. Greetings. I love this. Next verse. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. When, I, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, how did Paul get to Rome? You think, it's like, why are you going there, Bill? Well, Paul got to Rome, right? Acts says he went as a prisoner, and he was going with joy. Why? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, and Paul knew this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
character. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all and without reproach and will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, Unstable in all his ways, but the brother of a humble circumstance is the glory in his high position. For the rich man is the glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Thus you are to be rich toward God. Look at verse 12. Blessed is a man, that means happy, joy it speaks of is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life when the Lord has promised, which the Lord has promised to those who loved him. Look at John chapter 15. Go to the Gospel of John. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus talked about joy too. Now Jesus, of course, one of the greatest teachers of all time. Not the one of them, but the greatest. And Jesus took an agricultural analogy because he came, uh, he was living in the midst of an agricultural economy. So he would take, he would take uh, analogies from agriculture to, and, and, and teach with these analogies. You hear me many times basically take a biblical analogy, and a lot of pastors do, planting the seed of the word of God in our hearts and having it watered, okay? Well, Jesus, in this particular agricultural analogy, he talks about fellowship with this analogy. It's called the vine and the branches metaphor. And the result of being in fellowship with God is joy. Now look at it, it says in John 15:1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, that means every Christian that's in union with Christ, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So sometimes some of us are getting pruned through undeserved suffering, and therefore it's for character building, because that's what fruit speaks of, the Christ-like character. Speaking of the fruit, that which the Spirit produces. Now the Spirit's not mentioned by Jesus, but the Spirit is like analogous to the sap that's going through the vine. Can you have a vine that has produces fruit without the sap? No. Thus you can't produce Christ-like character without the Spirit. Look at what he says in verse, uh, verse 2. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean, meaning saved, because of the word which I have spoken to you, the gospel. Abide in me. That means stay on the vine. That's what it means. It means remain on the vine. Stay in fellowship with me. How do you do that? Obey his word. The minute you say no to his word, you're out of fellowship. Confess it and you're back in fellowship. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. It does not talk about loss of salvation. 
If you have abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. Maximum production of Christ-like character in your life. Becoming like Jesus. Then he says, why is this that he wants this? So that you may demonstrate, prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, and you will abide in me, in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, what he just mentioned, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, made full. Made full means become a reality. God wants you to be happy. Not, not be based upon that you got a million bucks. You know you have this joy when you don't have anything. When you're at the bottom of the barrel and you are squashed like a grape. Okay, when you are having it a bad time in life and everything's falling apart in your life and you can still have this joy because you are rejoicing in your relationship with God and you're rejoicing in your trials because you know that God's doing something in your life through the trials, that's when you know you have the love of God. Because a lot of people can say they love Jesus as, they, as they're sitting on the beach at Waikiki sipping on a gin and tonic or whatever you do at Waikiki in the beach. I'd like to know someday. But anyways, maybe me and Don will go away to Hawaii someday. No, don't get this started there, right? <laughs> Just kidding. So basically, this is the joy you can have when things are going bad. And Paul had this joy. And this is what the joy Jesus talked about. Go back to Romans. Go back to Romans fifteen thirty-two. Romans fifteen thirty-two. So Paul says, so that I might come to you in joy by the will of God. And again, when he says in joy, the word joy there, ara, it's correctly translated. And it refers to Paul experiencing the joy of the Lord, which Jesus just talked about, by means of fellowship with the Holy Spirit when he enters into the company of the Roman believers. Galatians 5, and 23, one of the manifestations of the Spirit in your life is you have this joy. Now, the believer people experiences the joy of, the, of God by experiencing fellowship with the Spirit. How will you do that? It's easy. It's accomplished by exercising faith in what the Spirit's teaching us in the Word of God. That we've, been, we've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. This in turn enables the Holy Spirit to produce a joy that is divine in quality and character and it's not based upon our outward circumstances or what one possesses. Hold your place. Again, hold your place. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Here's a good passage. Here's Paul in Philippians 1, sitting in Rome, and people are trying to get him killed as he awaits his appeal before Caesar. And you know how they were doing it? Teaching the gospel. <laughs> it was so funny. Look at Philippians chapter 1. And he talks about keeping a good attitude in the midst of his adversity. Look at this. Look at Philippians 1.12. He's arrived in Rome. This is the end of his first Roman imprisonment in 62 AD. And he's got people called the Judaizers who are trying to get people to get into, the, you know, to get people to go to, the, you know, obey the law and take, get circumcised to get saved and all that baloney. 
And we studied that Paul, they hated Paul because Paul taught, a gra- taught grace, not legalism. These people were trying to get him killed while he was sitting, in, sitting in, incarcerated, waiting his appeal before Caesar by teaching the gospel. But you can see Paul's attitude about the whole thing. He had a great attitude. Look at Philippians 1.12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Sitting in jail has actually gave, progressed the, the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The whole Praetorian Guard, that means that's the most elite force, military force in the Roman Empire. They were the flower of the Roman soldiers. They were the top echelon guys. They were all evangelized. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but also some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? What should I think? Only that, in every way, whether in pretense, that means a lie, pretext, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Go back to Romans fifteen thirty-two, Please. All right, Paul says in Romans 15, 32, so that I might come to you in joy by the will of God. And then he says, and find refreshing rest in your company. Uh, that f- phrase, find for refreshing rest in your company, is composed, first of all, the verb, sinanopomevama. And this word means find, refre- uh, find refreshing rest, sinanopomevama. And that's followed by the personal pronoun, si, which is translated in your company. Now, this verb... Is, means to relax in somebody's company. He's saying, when I get there, I'm going to relax. Uh, I'm going to find rest. This word means I'm going to find rest in someone's company. And it's used, of course, of Paul finding rest in the company of the Roman believers. So when I go back, uh, I'm going to be on my uh, we're gonna, uh, our last uh, service uh, for, before the summer break will be this Sunday, July 25th. And then the next day I fly out to go see my family and friends back in Massachusetts. And I We'll be resuming classes on uh, Sunday, August 8th. But in the interim there, I'm going to spend, try to spend relaxing time with family and friends. I'll go play my golf, uh, golf with my dad and my brothers and friends and get my butt kicked again like everybody else kicked me, like Keaton kicks my butt. And I'm going to spend time with my friends, John and Alex, and maybe Alice, I get to see her, and I'll, my friend Jim Ricard, and I'm going to spend a refreshing time in their company. I'm going to find rest. That, and relax and be, uh, and be in their company. That's what this word's talking about. Paul's saying, this is kind of funny. Think about this. He, doesn't even, he hasn't even met these people. He knows he's going to find refreshing rest in their company because he knows how positive they are to the word of God. 
Have you ever done that? You've never met a Christian, these Christian before, but you felt like you knew them your whole life? You know what that was? It's because you both had positive volition to the word of God. That's why. Now, the middle voice of this verb is what we call an indirect middle, meaning that <clears throat> the subject acts for himself, indicating that when Paul enters into the company of the Roman believers with joy, by the will of the Father, Paul's going to find rest for himself in the company of the Roman believers. <clears throat> now, the personal pronoun C, translated you in your Bibles, is used to the Roman believers as a corporate unit. So when he says, so that I might come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company, your there is talking about all the Roman believers as a corporate unit. Not just the Jews, he said. Everybody, both Jew and Gentile, male or female, slave and free man. I'm going to have refreshing rest with all those of you who come into my company. Now this word, see, which is translated yar in your Bibles, it functions as a date of, pla of place, indicating that Paul rela will relax when he enters into the company of the Roman believers. Till then, he can't relax. Why? He's got to deliver that gift to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be facing trouble there. But he knows eventually, as all things in life, will come to pass. You know, there was a... J. Vernon McGee used to, one of my favorite Bible teachers of all time is J. Vernon McGee, who actually turned me on to the Lord. He had this, he had this, uh, he said, told this story that in, in the Old South, in the South, in the, in back in the last century, early on, they were, this pastor was going around the congregation and asking people, what's your favorite verse? And then it came to a list, poor little black boy, and, uh, and he was, you know, uh, he was working on, you know, with picking cotton like everybody else was. And he, they asked him, what's your favorite verse? He said, it will come to pass. And that's the great line to always remember about. Whatever you're going through, it's going to come to pass. It's not going to be forever. The suffering, there's always, when you have a storm, there's, there's, there's rain, right? But then after the storm, there's the sun, right? There's darkness, and then there's the night. There's this turmoil on earth, and then there's going to be heaven. There's good times and bad times. And all those things, and the bad times actually are when you really appreciate the good times. really makes you appreciate the good times. Now, to summarize what we've noted here this evening, and we can, I'll send you on your way, Romans 15.32 is a purpose clause that does not present two more requests that parallel the two in Romans 15.31, but rather they express the ultimate goal of the two requests in Romans 15.31. And that's, that interpretation is indicated by Paul's statements in verses 24-28, which revealed that Paul would not go to Rome until he delivered that offering from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul, in verse 32, expresses the ultimate goal of his two requests in verse 31, namely, that when he enters in the company of the Roman believers, he's going to be able to relax. He's going to say, ah. People always ask me, you get looking excited. Every time I go out east, they go, you ex look inside to get go back east? And I honestly tell them, I'm, I'm not going to sit there and lie to them. I'm going to say, uh, not until I'm on the plane that I actually think about it. I mean, I, quite frankly, I'm working. You know, I work, you know, I work. And I'm working on my lessons and, and doing what I can. And then when I finally get the door, go out, pack. You know, I pack the night before. I'm not like some of you girls who, who pack a week in advance. I don't do that. I'm a guy. I go, I just wing it, throw it in the bag, boom, boom, I'm out of here. My mother can wash the clothes if I don't bring enough, you know? So, and what she does. 
and I'll definitely milk her for a lot when I go back there. I'll be having her waiting on me hand and foot. And uh, if she might be listening in, you never know. So I'll, uh, she can be uh, waiting for me with my lasagna when I get back there. But uh, <laughs> this is terrible, huh? Well, maybe they, they go, sometimes they go to the wealth side after. So, so what's going to happen is then I'm going to be I'm going to be when I'm on the plane and finally the plane's taking off. Oh, okay, I'm on vacation. <laughs> I'm flying in their friendly skies, up, up, and away. Well, we've run out of time. i got no more to give to you. We'll be here Sunday. Remember, we'll be here Sunday at 9. And uh, then we're taking a summer break, as we do around this time of year. And we'll be resuming our classes uh, Sunday, August 8th, with our Day of the Lord series and the Lord's Supper on that day. So you got a, you got a break from listening to me for a while. <laughs> now let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us and encourage us and instruct us with what we heard this evening so that we might bring glory to you in our personal periphery and continue to grow in our relationship with you, Father. We also pray that you give us traveling mercies on the way home and bless the fellowship after. We pray that the Spirit would be guiding and directing the the, uh, fellowship after class. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.